came together, Paul wrote such a, uh, an exposition of the gospel um, that is making it more profitable to share, knowing more of the depth of it. And I thank you for reading for being willing to set it forth in a modern, clear way uh, and all of the ramifications of all of the praise work. The praise for Sharon and transcribing and translating Ray's class into Spanish that it's all done. Bring that word of the history of the world to to people who speak Spanish. And I praise Sharon's uh, persistence in translating into a language that she I thank you for hard work. Lord, we agree with those prayers and do desire that uh, you would work and we know that you are more concerned about all of the things that we've raised and more involved than we can know or understand. We just, as you desire us to lay these upon you, we've shared them uh, as a group in prayer and desire and know that you're working all things for good for all that are called according to your purpose. We praise you for that. And this morning we desire to also have clarity of thought and mind to understand your revelation, what you've given to us, that we may be able to be more effective in reaching lost people, and that it would also motivate us to uh, do the difficult work of evangelism. So we just commit our time asking your spirit work amongst us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning and probably at least next week and maybe even more than that, depending on how far we get, I want to focus in the book of Romans on an underlying theme that runs throughout the book. It's a pretty simple concept, but yet I think it's misunderstood by a lot of believers and certainly by the unbelieving world. It's not difficult to understand, but our natural tendency is to do the very opposite of what Scripture teaches us and encourages us to do. And that's that whole very basic, very maybe even familiar area of faith. And this has been the underlying theme in terms of we come into a relationship with God on the basis of faith. So it's good that we know exactly what that is, and I think this passage opens a lot of that. And we're in the portion where Paul is actually describing the Old Testament pattern of justification by faith, and in that pattern he's using Abraham as the example. So he was the example of Christians in Rome. In fact, he was an example for Christians of all time. He was also the prime example for Old Testament believers because he is the father of all those that have the same faith as Abraham, is what Paul is telling us. So just a quick reminder of who this book was written to, believers that, in fact, many of them died on that very spot as martyrs in the Colosseum. In fact, underneath... There would have been a flooring on top where that walkway is. It would have been about that level. Underneath served something like a holding tank, you might say, or a prison where they would hold believers and also wild animals. And they would martyr believers as a spectacle, as a sport. 
So this is who it's written to, and Paul eventually was executed by the Roman Empire. Just a quick reminder. So we're talking about God's righteousness and God's providing it because we stand condemned before him. And Paul uses, rather than the word salvation, he uses a legal term, which is talking about the same concept, but looking at it from the ultimate legal system that God has established, he calls it justification. In other words, a right standing before a holy God and his standards, which is his law, we stand justified only on the basis of faith, there's nothing that we can do. That's the emphasis of chapter 3, 21 through 5, 21, the end of chapter 5. We looked at the provision of justification, one sentence, chapter 3, 21 through 26. A little complicated, but it gives lots of theological insight, and it's written for the believer, not for the unbeliever. It's too complicated. In fact, too complicated for most believers, right? So that's the essence of this whole section. Everything else is supporting that. He's going to emphasize the priority of justification, 27 through 31. It's apart from works, by faith, by faith alone, apart from the law. And we're in chapter 4, which gives us the pattern for justification. And it's an Old Testament pattern. So you can't support it from Scripture, and the Scripture that existed in the first century was the Old Testament, then... Any doctrine that you want to come up with is pretty shaky. So he goes to the prime example of Abraham, and I think Abraham is the underlying theme of the whole chapter, and he's the pattern for justification by faith apart from works. And since he's before the law, it has to be before law as well or apart from law. And in chapter 5, which we'll get to, He's going to give us the profit that is gained from justification or the benefits, if you want to break away from the alliteration there. So we're looking at this covenant of Abraham, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. I think it runs throughout. And there are four parts to it. We've already looked at 4.13. That's the promise, the Abrahamic promise. And I mentioned Paul uses the word promise because he goes all the way to the beginning of the covenant. It comes in the form of a promise in Genesis 12. And eventually in chapter 15, God enters into a covenant. And that Abrahamic promise, Abraham believed. That's the whole idea here. The alternative is a system of law which calls for obedience or works, and he's going to negate that. In other words, uh, that just doesn't work. If that's the case, then it negates grace and it negates faith. So he does away with that in 14 and 15, and then he gives assuring purpose of it. And we looked at that last time, 4, 16, 17. And now the fourth part is an Abrahamic example. So he starts with Abraham as an example of justification. And now he's going to expand Abraham as an example of a man of faith. So that's the theme of verses 18 through 21. And this is a very important passage in terms of understanding faith. I think this is a central passage. And I've kind of expanded it on your outline sheet because I think he lays out 
all of the important elements of faith that you can find elsewhere, sometimes emphasized in some passages more than others. But I've got at least eight elements or eight principles related to faith, and I've spelled them out there for you with the outline within an outline, as we sometimes do. So you have the exegetical outline, and then in uh, italics, I've given you uh, an outline within. This is what biblical faith looks like, and I observe at least eight elements in it, so we'll look at that. So that's the nature of faith, and we probably won't get past verse 18 today, and we'll pick up where we leave off. So let's begin with uh, verse 18, where we have the essence of the passage, and Paul begins, and by the way, there's something of a kind of a continuity between 17 and 18, but I think there is a break. Some versions put a semicolon there, some put a comma there, but I think it's best to view it as a new sentence. In the Greek, it could go either way. It's not totally clear. Remember, the manuscripts don't have punctuation, so... You have to use the the grammar to determine these things, and in this case, it's not that clear. But if we begin a new sentence here, I think the sentence runs through the end of 8, verse 18, in hope against hope, he believed so that, now that goes back to what he was talking about, Abraham believing and the scriptures that indicate that, so that he might become a father of many nations. We've already looked at that, so it's kind of a repetition according to that which had been spoken, very importantly, so shall your descendants be. Now, where does that come from? He's already quoted Genesis 15, 6. Where does this come from? It's the passage immediately preceding, which would be (laughs) 5. Interestingly, so shall your descendants be, He has just described the multitude in verse 5 of Genesis 15 of descendants that Abraham will have. And he uses an illustration. If you can count the stars, of which even just in our own Milky Way, scientists estimates 100 billion stars just in our Milky Way. And perhaps Abraham could not observe any more than that. But if you go beyond that, the stars of the heaven include other galaxies as well. Mary Lee. Um, I'm a little bit so shall your descendants be first back to first. That's Genesis fifteen five. Oh. Preceding verse. Okay. He's already quoted and expounded upon six earlier in the chapter. But he takes us back to the preceding verse here. We'll get there. Right now I want to develop this idea of hope against Hope. And I like the way the New American Standard puts it. Some versions rearrange the text a little bit, but in the original text, uh, that's pretty literally the way it appears. Not only very early, but one against the other, the two prepositional phrases, one right next to the other. So what is he talking about here in hope against hope? Let's kind of understand that. First of all, uh, let's clarify what hope is biblically. So if you do a word study, you're going to find many passages where theologically, when we're talking about a hope in eternal things, a hope in God, a future hope. Now, the word is used in an ordinary, everyday sense, but 
in general, when it's used mainly theologically, it's not talking about a wish. When we speak of, and probably in the first century as well, they probably use the word in the sense of, you know, this is what I wish will happen. In other words, I have no basis for it. I wish someday that I could be rich. All right? No reason why. I, you know, that's just a wish, a desire. That's not the way the word is used in its theological sense. It's a confident expectation. And that expectation is based on certain things. And primarily, it's an expectation on what God has said. So it's a confident expectation. And just to give you a feel for some of the strongest verses that indicate that, let's look up these passages that kind of elaborate what this hope is all about. This hope also... Not only is it an expectation, but you have to have an idea of what you're expecting so it includes some outcome, and it envisions an outcome. And oftentimes in the Bible, that outcome is very unlikely. So it's not just a wish that has no basis, but it's something that is not only unlikely, but something that God has said he's going to do. And we put our hope in that. So it envisions an outcome. Somebody got Second Corinthians? You got it, Bob? You want to do Philippians there? Great. You twitched, so you got to do one. <laughs> Hebrews 6.11, you're twitching too, so you want to do that one, and we'll let you do 18 as well since you're in the chapter. You got it, Bob? Second Corinthians one seven, And notice the words associated with hope in that context. Our hope for you is unshaken. Unshaken. In other words, nothing's going to remove that hope that Paul has for the Corinthians. Keep reading. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our So he knows certain things that God has promised in the Christian life, and that gives him a vision of an outcome That gives him a hope. That's biblical hope. And from that, it is, what what was the word in your version? A hope is unshaken. So it's an unshakable hope. Philippians 1.20. According to my earnest expectation. Earnest expectation. I think the expectation, is there hope there or is that the? Expectation and hope. And hope. That in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also with will, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay, that's the confident expectation. That's what hope is, and it's put together in that verse, Hebrews six eleven. Dwayne, you got it. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence as to realize. The The full assurance of hope, fully convinced, confident expectation. And in order to have that, you have a vision or an idea of an outcome. Want to read the last part there? Read it again, start over. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Until the end. 
In other words, there's something going to happen at the end. So it's a future anticipation. And then 18, he uses an image here to convey the idea of hope. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before. Okay, does it have the word anchor in there? Your version? Maybe 19, okay. Yeah, read that one. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Okay, it's like an anchor. It, it gives stability. In other words, you're, you're set. So it's not just a wish. Wish something would happen. It's a confident expectation. It's like an anchor that's going to keep you in the dock. So those are a few of the verses, and there's others as well that uh, are not as clear, but I think convey the same idea. So that's biblical hope. Now, in this context, when it says in hope, it's the Greek epi, epidi, so it's a little prepositional phase. Epi is on or upon, and what that does, in other words, he has this confident expectation that gives him an idea of an outcome. In other words, God has said certain things, so these things must come about. That is that hope. And this is what anchored his life. And the text is going to expand upon this. In other words, it gave him assurance, this hope. And as a result of that assurance, he put his faith. So hope and faith go together, and in this passage, they're put together. So the first phrase, I believe, looks to God. And when it says against hope, it's para or par elpida. Elpida is hope. And then we have a preposition for against or opposed or sometimes it's alongside of. But in this context, it's probably more the idea of hope against hope. That looks at the circumstances. If you look at the hope circumstances then everything goes against it. There's no way. So the phrase together, Abraham in the midst of everything around him is telling him, there's no way this is going to happen. And yet in that, where everything is going against any hope, in other words, obliterating hope, the only way this is going to happen, it has to look to God. It has to put its faith, in other words, it's in hope, of what God is going to do based on what God has said. And Paul has already expanded what God has said, and he's going to further get into it in the passage that we're looking at. And he goes right back to the Abrahamic covenant and the stipulations that God has bound himself legally to accomplish. He enters into a contract, and it's on that basis that Abraham has an anticipated outcome uh, because it is based on the Almighty God. So that's the little phrase, hope against hope. And then it says, in hope against hope, he envisions this outcome that goes totally against all circumstances. He's going to expand upon that. He believed. There's faith. There's the verbal form And if you do a word study, as I said in the email, 
The verb form occurs 243 times, so it's a very frequent word. Something like 90, I think, I can't remember, I'll have to check it out, but many times just in the Gospel of John itself. And the noun form that corresponds to it, coincidentally, occurs the same number of times. So let's get an introduction to this concept of faith, and then we'll get into the passage and see how far we can get in terms of developing these elements of faith, of biblical faith. So this is not just a nebulous, unspecified, unclear faith, but we're talking about biblical faith. In fact, I had to title it that way. First of all, let's begin in a broad sense. Everyone has faith. Every single human being has faith. It's part of what God has built in mankind. Now, someone look up Linda, why don't you get Roman, you got it? Romans 12, 3. Now, this pertains to the believer, and I think it's specific to the believer, and it's in a particular context dealing with what's going to follow in terms of things pertaining to a believer. But I think that a way of applying that, I think it is broader than this immediate context, but it gives us an idea here in terms of at least believers, but I think it goes beyond that. And the reason for that is that all of us exercise faith all the time. The unbeliever exercises faith. When he gets in his car and drives it out the driveway, he is exercising faith in the mechanical operation of that automobile. And when he's driving to a distant place, he's trusting that that automobile will get him from point A to point B. He is also trusting that others are going to observe in large measure the rules of driving or the laws associated with driving such that he will get from point A to point B at 70 miles an hour, which if he didn't have that faith or if those circumstances weren't present, it would be an extremely dangerous thing to fling yourself out there at 70 miles an hour. So he has faith that laws will be enforced. He has faith that people will in large measure obey those laws. He has faith that that automobile is going to get him from point A to point B. He also has faith in his own abilities to be able to maneuver that automobile to make all the right turns in all of the directions that need to be made. So he's exercising faith on a constant basis. Every unbeliever Every one of us, right? So it's not a matter of faith. We'll get to it. Not a matter of the amount of faith. This is basic. But the issue is the content of the faith and where that faith finds its object. That's the basic issue. Atheists have a faith that this world somehow put itself together without Mm -hmm. a designer. Exactly. But that's a faith. Mm -hmm. That's a faith position. That's a theological position as well. So the atheist has a theology as well. He has a theological position, and he puts his faith in that position. Linda, you got (coughs) Romans 12, 3. This isn't a context of believers, but I think it's broader in terms of all of humanity. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, 
not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each of men. God has allotted to each, now in this context it's of the believer, a measure of faith. And I think that's true of the unbeliever as well, because all things come from God, all good things come from him, so the unbeliever is given the ability to put confidence in certain things. The issue is whether they're putting their confidence in things that God would desire or putting their confidence in things other than that. So the issue is what is that faith, the content of it, and the object, and we'll expand upon that as we get into more scriptures. Mary Lee. Measure of faith that God has given, but that's not an excuse because we are to work, grow our faith. Mm-hmm. That's another we're to allow our faith. Well, God will test our faith, and we're supposed to uh, then apply more faith to it. So it's kind of like yep. starting yep. to run a marathon. You run a block, and then you run two blocks, yep. and eventually you're running. Yep, you're already on number six on oh, the outline. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You're almost, uh, we're just barely at one. We haven't even gotten one yet. Okay? So the issue is content and the object of our faith. The terms are very similar in the Greek text, even though we use different words in English. The noun form, pistis, it's usually translated faith. The verb form, very similar, pistuo. We've got a English transliteration there. That's the the verb form, and generally it is translated not having faith. It could be, but it is translated to believe or belief, believing in the verbal sense. So we use faith and we use believe. We use two words that in the Greek text is captured by the same root word in just two different forms, the noun form and the verb form. So the idea of believing and the idea of faith are the same. One's a verb and one's a noun. So if we understand either one of them, or you do a word study on either one of them, the idea is the same. It's whether it's a noun or whether it's an action, one or the other. So it's the same term, basically. So I will mix, sometimes I'll use a passage in a verbal form, And sometimes we use the noun form, depending on the verse, to come up with the principles that we're talking about. And by the way, in verse 18, he uses the verbal form first, and then he's going to use the noun form later on. So let's begin a little bit of excursus, if you will, on this whole idea of faith, and then we'll work our way through the passage and pull out from it these elements that I think are embedded in the text itself. So let's talk about in a broad sense, the importance of faith, because this is very basic, very important, something that we need to keep in mind, something that is essential, because justifying faith is one part of the overall Christian faith that we will exercise after we are justified. I don't think there's a difference. I don't think that the the Bible makes a difference in the two. It's just a matter of the content. When we are justified, the content is the gospel message. And the object is the one who accomplished all on our behalf 
so that we may be justified. And then when it comes to living it out, the content may be a little bit different, maybe a promise that God has made, or maybe a principle that you can find in Scripture, and we believe it, and now our actions and our life reflect that content or that object. The object of the faith is always God himself. That's the tension, because our tendency is, well, I can figure this thing out myself. Or, uh, you know, I've done this before, so I can do it again. So the object is really the issue here. But let's talk about the importance of biblical faith. We can start with Jesus himself, and let's look these up. Somebody get Matthew. Anyone else care to read? Go ahead. You want to do that one, Russ? Romans 1.8. There's an easy one because we're already in Romans. Linda's got the easy one. She likes the easy one. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.8. You want to do that one, Dwayne? And Second Thessalonians 1.4. Let's go back to Bob. You want to do that one, Bob? Second Corinthians 1.4. Okay, it's admired by Jesus, and he expresses it. Matthew 8.10. Russ, you got it? Okay, this is... A centurion that came and asked Jesus to heal his... Yeah, it's it's in a context of healing the centurion. Okay. Or his, his what is it, daughter? Jesus, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And this is a Roman. Yes. A Gentile. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is praising and admiring the faith of this Gentile centurion because he has his faith in the proper object. In the ability, the content is God's ability to heal and the object is Jesus Christ. So it's admired by Jesus. There are similar passages elsewhere where Jesus praises others for their faith. He also reprimands others for their lack of faith. And when he's saying lack of faith, it's not in the sense of quantity, but it's more in the sense of quality in terms of content and object. So it's also commended, not only by Jesus, but it's commended in Romans 1.8 by Paul. And it's something that is commended and it's commendable when we exercise faith in the proper content and Placed in the proper object. Romans, you got that one, Linda? 1 8, the same book. First, I thank my God for Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Okay, wow. Wouldn't it be a neat thing if somebody would say, you, the faith of you people at Grace Church is being proclaimed? In other words, everybody's talking about it all over the world. He could say that about the Romans. Great commendation. In fact, he starts many of his letters in this way in terms of praising them for some aspect. Here he's commending the Roman churches, which there were many individual house churches. He's commending them that their faith is being proclaimed all over the world. First Thessalonians 1.8, is that you, uh, Dwayne? For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and yeah, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. Okay, notice that. Their faith of the Thessalonians has gone forth. It's been reported. 
People have been talking about it. And as a result, I think people are encouraged. And Second Thessalonians 1, 4, Bob? Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Same church, same people, Thessalonians. Paul is bragging about them. Not about how great they are, but bragging about the faith, which implies they're humble and they recognize where true ministry, true power comes. It doesn't come from them. It comes from God working through them and their faith in that is commended by Paul. And these are just a couple of passages, a few of them. There's others that are very similar to that. So Paul commends it. And it should be commended amongst anyone that lives a life of faith. It's also a priority. And Hebrews 11.6 gives us a priority. Romans 14.23. Linda, since you're in Romans, do you want to do the 14.23? Dwayne, why don't you skip over to Hebrews 11.6. And in the meantime, somebody, Bob, do you want to get Mark 9? And I'll have Craig read Second Corinthians. Dwayne, go ahead. You got Hebrews eleven and six. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Okay, without faith we cannot please God. So it should be a high priority. The only way to please him is by trusting in him or believing what he has said, believing in what he has promised. High priority. Can't please God without it. Also, similarly, Romans 14.23. But he who doubts is condemned to eat. Ooh, that's pretty strong. He who doubts is condemned. Because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. The alternative, whatever is not of faith, is sin. High priority. So not only can we not please God without it, but if we don't have it, it's sin. It's very, very high priority. So this is a very important area that we need to nail down. But it also has great potential. Mark 9, and, and this I've just come up with some, just looking over some passages relating to faith, doing, I haven't completed my word study, I ran out of time, thought I should get some sleep as well. Some of you, Linda, you probably stayed up all night, right? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. So these are just some scriptures that emphasize how important it is. It's admired by Jesus himself because apart from it, it is sin. It's commended by Paul because it's at the heart of the Christian life. It's such a high priority that you can't please God without it. And even without it, Anything you do is sin. And now, but it has great potential as well. Mark 9, 23 and 24. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible. All things are possible. Notice the broadness of this. All things are possible. What? For one who believes. For one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. All right. Great. That's a great prayer. 
I have a measure of faith, but I, I want to have the kind of faith that in fact does accomplish all things or things in your power. I heard a, a little saying of, it's not saving faith as in that's all. It's living faith. Yep. Yeah, living faith. Yeah. yeah. It's not just like one area. And oftentimes this is a good prayer to pray. You know, I, I want to believe, I, I believe you, God. I, it's just so impossible that I want a greater measure here. So great potential. All things are possible. Because God is unlimited. God is infinite. God is omnipotent. If you're in a struggle, if you're in the midst of some difficulty and you don't see a resolution, you don't see a way out of it, you can be assured it's not because God does not have the power to get you out of that circumstance. Just as he said, let there be light, what happened? There was light. He could in an instant say, let this be gone from you, this struggle, this difficulty, this stress. And if he said that, it would be gone from you. So it's not an issue of his power. And it's not even sometimes an issue of his will. It's more of an issue of probably God is using a circumstance to develop faith. And we'll talk some more about that when we talk about growing faith. So it has great potential. And it's the essence of life, the Christian life. In fact, how are we identified as Christians? We're called Christians, Christ ones, but the Bible often refers to us as what? Believers. In other words, this is at the essence of who we are. We are believers. In other words, we are ones that display faith. We're ones that exercise faith. This is who we are. This is our characteristic. <coughs> And should be a characteristic. And a couple of passages that bring this out. There's a bunch of them that I could have given you in terms of those that are called believers. In fact, even chapter 4 speaks of Abraham as a believer. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Great, cut it. Uh, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Okay, we walk by faith. In other words, this is what should characterize us. Walking by faith rather than by sight. Or it doesn't look at the circumstances. We're going to see more of that. It looks at what God has said as content. In Galatians 2.20. The life that I now live by faith. In me. The life I now lead flesh. I live in the Son of God. Without me Okay, she didn't have to look it up. Something like that. Something like that. She summarized it. Not a verbatim quote. No. Yeah, she's following the pattern of a lot of the uh, writers of Scripture. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, right. that's how they treat Scripture sometimes. Okay, so this is the essence of life. This is the essence of the Christian walk. This is how we are to live. And obviously, our old nature goes totally against that. You know, we figured this thing out. We know how to live the Christian life. We'll get up in the morning and we're going to do it. Oh, I got to do the beginning. Yeah. Oh, you've got the first. For the life that I, which I now live in, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up. Okay. In the Son of God. Faith in him. And there's lots of other passages. I'm just kind of summarizing here. There's also the example of faith. 2 Timothy 3.10. 
First Timothy 4.12. Someone want to get those or I forgot to flash them? Okay. You got the first one. And Dwayne's looking up First Timothy there. You got 3.10? Second yeah. Timothy. Again, this is Paul to Timothy. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Okay, a list of Christian qualities, actions. He's commending Timothy following Paul's example. Paul was a believer. The essence of his life was lived by faith. Timothy followed the example. Dwayne, you got First Timothy 4.12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Okay, that's an exhortation to Timothy, but we can apply it as an exhortation to us as well. We should be an example of all of these Christian virtues, but particularly an example of faith, because that's who we are. We are believers. That's our identity. So that gives you a little bit of the importance. And the first principle that we have, I think, if we put all of this together in verse 18, is it has that supernatural vision. In other words, it sees things from God's perspective. It has to envision that outcome that God has outlined or God has revealed or God has in some way made evident in his word. So it has a supernatural outlook. In other words, it looks to him. The hope is in him and then we believe him. So you have to have an idea. And I'm going to expand upon this because uh, when we talk about content, it's related to the content what God has revealed. So that's the first element, I believe, of biblical faith. You have to have an idea of what God has said. And you have to have a little bit of an idea of how that might work itself out in your life in a personal way. And now you trust that. Just as you start out on a trip, you you know, you're you're trusting in that automobile. You envision a destination. You you don't get out of the garage Thinking, well, I'm going to just go wherever I feel like it. If I feel like turning right, I'm going to turn right. If I want to go left, I'm going to go left. You have a destination in mind. And all of that faith that you have in a normal, natural way is now geared to getting you to that destination. Biblical faith is analogous to that. In other words, we have a destination. We have an outcome that we've envisioned. We have a hope of how things are going to turn out. And now I believe in that content, that promise, or I believe in that principle in God's word. So it starts with a supernatural vision. And there's a purpose behind faith, so that he might become a father of many nations. That's part of that vision, because God said, you will be a father of many nations. Where does that come out of? Do you remember? We talked about that last time. Part of the Abrahamic covenant, one of the stipulations, that's in chapter 17. Abraham was going to be a father of many nations, and he's believing so that it'll work itself out. So he's going to take the first step of opening the garage door to get the car out, to make it to that destination, which is long range. 
Abraham in his lifetime is not going to see the fulfillment of that. In fact, it's going to take him several years before he sees the fulfillment of the very first son, much less the many nations. But he has a vision or he has a picture because God has made it clear there's going to be many nations and he can envision. You know, he's living in Canaan. He knows about Egypt. He knows that there's a Persia. He knows about these others. And there's going to be many nations that are going to come out of him. He has an idea of the outcome. And that's where he's putting his faith. According to what? To that which had been spoken. Now, there's several things in this verse. We're not even going to make it through it. So shall your descendants be. And that comes out of the Genesis 15 passage. So he's mixing the covenant that was given initially in Genesis 15. And he also is including an aspect or a stipulation that's clarified in Genesis 17. That's the content. We'll get to that. And let's conclude with this second element, and we'll pick up here next week. God's word is the content. In other words, biblical faith has content. It's always related to what God has said, what God has revealed. And what God said and what he revealed to Abraham, he not only promised, but he put it in covenant form, And now Abraham can trust it and take the steps leading to that fulfillment or leading to that outcome. Even though it is so long range that Abraham's not going to see it even in his lifetime. But he's going to see some of it. He's going to see Isaac. He's going to see Isaac's descendants. And Abraham is also going to have other children as well later on. So whatever God did in reviving him, it worked with Keturah. And from her, other peoples came, other eventual nations. So Abraham envisioned it. He saw it in his mind, supernatural vision, and it's based on what God has said. It's not something I want. In other words, I I hope for something, and I'm going to put my faith that I'm going to retire. Well, I don't know all the circumstances, and God hasn't necessarily given me a promise there. And You know, that's not based on anything I know of in God's Word. That's just a wish. In fact, I don't even have that wish. (laughs) I don't envision that at all. But a lot of people do. It has to be something based on what God has revealed. That's biblical faith. And next week, hopefully, we'll get through the other six. We're also going to see that... Biblical faith, it may have some setbacks, but overall it doesn't retreat. It goes forward, and and this is in the text, it also looks beyond the circumstances. We've already talked about that. That's against hope. In other words, everything, the text is going to bring that out. That's verse 19. It goes beyond the circumstances because the circumstances are crying out and saying there's no way. No way a barren woman is going to bear a child. No way a hundred-year-old man is going to still be fertile. Ninety-nine. Yeah, ninety-nine. <laughs> All right. Thank you. It also is victorious over doubt. And we're going to see there was some doubt, that there was some misunderstanding on Abraham's part. It grows in time. We'll talk about that. And there's a lot of other passages that encourage us along those lines. And here's another bottom line. If it's biblical faith, it's going to glorify God. 
and generally it's going to glorify God through suffering. And in the case of Abraham, you see a lot of suffering as well, and a lot of hardship, and a lot of difficulty, and a lot of time. And then eight, it has God, the true God, as its object. So it is content-based, and it is object-based. And those are the main issues on biblical faith. Summary of these two principles or elements of biblical faith. Biblical faith has supernatural vision based on God's word. Plotius, why don't you close for us today? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this study that you provide in your word. Your word is true, your word is right. Say, Lord, we must be upon the Spirit and believe in us as we go out to the world to provide be merciful to us, protect us, and guide us on the spirit step in every moment that we do. We keep you close. Amen. Amen.